You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Rise and shine, Perth. Welcome to The Perth Property Show, another round on a Monday morning. I'm Trent Fleskins, your host as always. And this week is a super interesting topic. To fix or not to fix? That is our question today with our leading mortgage broker. Doesn't need an introduction. He gets enough of them. Sam Carello, how are you going, mate? Very good, Trent. Thanks for having me on. Hey, I think we've spoken about fixed on the podcast before, but that was around a year ago. And how life has changed since the Royal Banking Commission, since global conditions have changed, and I guess the business case that banks are putting towards customers to go towards now what a fixed rate starting with a two in some cases. Isn't it crazy? Yeah, we've sort of got seen uh, fixed rates out there from about 2.84, which is very cheap, mate. I think the question that everyone asks is how low can they go? That used to be a deposit rate that you'd turn your nose up to, right? (laughs) Now it's a mortgage rate. (laughs) Two years ago, if the bank was paying you 2.84% interest on your account, yeah, you wouldn't be happy. But uh, now, yeah, you can borrow at that rate, so it's, uh, it's good for consumers. There are a lot of considerations in this space, though, just like there have always been considerations. The fixed rate is really a futures contract, I think, with a bank. What you're betting is that over the space of that period, whether it's one, two, three, four, five years, you're going to eventually pay less over that time than you think you will if you went variable. Or there are other goals to safeguarding, you know, budgeting around that fixed space as well. But really, what you're doing is locking in that space. And what we have to remember is generally, the banks have a lot more information than us about where they think markets are going and where money is going. So if they're setting these rates, sometimes it's for a reason. If the fixed rate is lower than the variable rate, maybe they still think that it's going to keep going lower. Correct. Yeah, historically, I guess what the fixed rates are going at is a good indication of where the banks think the variable rate will go. In saying that, at the moment, a majority of the fixed rates are cheaper than the variable, and we've seen three RBA rate cuts. The banks have passed on some of these, not not the full amount each time. I guess the important thing to remember with a fixed rate, it has to suit the client. So, client has different goals and different needs and objectives. It's important to make sure you have an in-depth conversation with your, your broker or your, your financial advisor around taking a fixed rate because they're not suitable for everyone. Um, there are limitations, right? If you're planning on selling in a couple of years, you're probably not taking a five-year fixed rate out. Correct, yeah. So, I mean, say you're planning to sell in two years, yeah, you're not going to take a five-year fixed rate because there's going to be break costs involved there. Can you explain how break fees actually work? It seems to be some hidden mythological (laughs) calculation that even as a broker, I email the bank and the bank comes back with a number. Don't really know how it came up. Yeah, so it's all, all based on the wholesale interest rate. So, I guess when the banks offer fixed rates, so they can offer typically one to five years uh, in the residential space, uh, what they're doing is that they might go out to the market and purchase, say, $500 million worth of funds for a period of two and a half years at a rate of, let's say, 1.3%. That's what they buy at. They then have this large uh, amount of money, which they can lend to their consumers and obviously put a margin on. So they might bring out a hot two-year rate, for example, that 2.84 we've got at the moment. And with that, they essentially entered into an agreement with the wholesaler to say in two and a half years, we're going to pay back that $500 million. They then pass that on to the clients and if they do it at a rate of 2.84, say you stay in that fixed rate for your two years, there's no problem. The banks can meet their obligations. They've made their profit. They know what their profit's going to be and that's what the consumer is obliged to fulfill for the bank. Yeah, they, that's exactly right. It gives them the certainty. If you were to say break 
a fixed rate. So say you signed up, let's say for a two-year fixed rate, in a year you decide to sell your home, there will be a break cost. Now, typically how that works, it's, it's the economic cost to the bank. A simple way to put it is when you sign up, whatever the wholesale interest rate is, so this isn't the rate you get, this is the rate that the banks are paying for the funds. It's hard for us to know what that is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at the moment, I think they're sitting about 1.3, 1. 1.5%. Mm. But yeah, it's the rate that the banks pay for the funds. If that has gone down, then there's going to be an economic cost to the bank because they've locked in at a certain rate. And then when they re-lend your money out to another consumer... They can't make as much money. Correct. So they've made a loss. So as a result, they will pass that loss onto you because you agreed to sign up for two years. You've broken your contract with them by uh, breaking it after one. Uh, likewise, say you signed up for two years after one year, you still want to sell, but the rate, that wholesale interest rate has gone up, the break fee is going to be minimal. You're going to have an admin fee, uh, but the bank's able to then say in one year's time, re-lend re those funds for at more, a higher rate. Make more money. And make more money on it. Could they give you money? No. <laughs> no. Like even, um, you know, you see even with the bank's rebates and things like that, that they're offering for refinances, you know, they'll take your first payment out after a month, but most banks take 60 days to give you that $2,000 cash back. So Yeah, we've seen that a lot with our clients. <laughs> trying to we get, have to follow them up for it. Yeah, sometimes if you don't, if you don't keep on it, yeah, you, you, yeah, you can, um, yeah, they're cheeky. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the examples, real-life examples of what situations would work, would be a good idea for a fixed rate, and maybe situations outside of guess we're going to sell might not work. Yeah, so I guess a couple good situations where you may look to a fixed rate, and this is what we do with each client. We'll sit down and do a budget with them. We'll see what sort of cash flow they've got coming in and coming out and what, I guess, future changes there may be. A good example is you might have a young family uh, just dropped to one income. As a result, cash flow is obviously going to be restricted. So, what they want is they want to make sure that Certainty. each month... Yeah, they it's a budget. So, each month they know, all right, I need $1,800 a month for my mortgage. Whilst one partner's off work looking after the children, we're not going to have over, say, $10,000 extra to, to repay into that fixed rate. So, that's a good a good time it helps people to budget uh, it's a good example even if there's a possibility that the rate might go down further they'd prefer to just have that certainty that it's not going to go up in that time either correct yeah and i guess i think we we're talking earlier a good example is probably uh, me which I, I share with my clients so i fixed in uh... sam carello's real life example about <laughs> sam carello hit me me and my partner bought a, an apartment about two years ago, say April April 17. Uh, it was just before I was starting up the business. We bought the apartment and I thought, you know what, let's fix in rates. At that time, all the information was they're not going to go much lower. Yep. You wanted certainty. That's it. I fixed in for 4.2 uh, for three years. I, and the reason I fixed in is I wanted the certainty around the repayment. I knew each month I had to make this much to pay my, uh, my mortgage for the apartment. Do you know what the variable rate was at that time? Uh, it was slightly higher, I believe. So, you were um, thinking, good deal here? Yeah, slightly higher or, or about the same. It was around that 4% mark. Yep. Um, but for me, I just wanted the certainty and, and that worked really well. I mean, at the moment, you can get three years at 2.84. So, I'm <laughs> well and truly out of the market. Kicking yourself a little bit? Nah, not really because it, it suited my situation at the time. Okay. And I guess that's the main thing to consider or, you know take stock of is when you are looking to fix in. You can't predict what's going to happen in six months, 12 months, two years, whatever. You've got to look at your situation at the time, try and forecast where you want to be. And if you go, right, those repayments I'm comfortable with, you may win, you may lose in terms of the rates moving. So, I mean, I use that 
with my clients because at the moment that's probably the the biggest question or the first question people ask when we we sit down is should i fix yeah because they're the cheapest rates and the ones that are being hammered down people's people's eyeballs at the moment they're yeah. on tv they're on the billboards any anywhere you get all you can see is 2.8 something from boq or I, I see it all the time i guess there's some real life arguments at the moment as to, you know if the cash rate is so low and the banks really aren't passing on all of these movements the di- what's the differential that you're seeing right now between a three-year fixed and a variable rate with the same bank? Depends on LVR, so how much you're lending against the property and I guess loan size as well. But I guess the cheapest variable we've sort of got in the market at the moment uh, with an offset is about 3.09, 3.08 as you can get your fixed rates and, and that's for an 80% lend. Mm. Uh, you can get your fixed rates at you know 2.84 for that same So that's lend. really one interest rate drop. Correct. That's yeah. the differential there. Yeah. So what you're thinking, what you're having to get your head around as a consumer is, do I think it's going to drop more than one more times in the space of time that we have a fixed rate? You just got to make sure with the fixed rates, most banks have a limitation. So another example, say you've got a, a dinks couple, double income, no kids, a nice monthly surplus where they can afford to put money in the offset or pay back the loan. Uh, that limitation of $10,000 might not work for them. So in that case, you would look to, to at least keep a portion variable, if not all of it, whilst I guess the media and the evidence out there is that rates aren't going to go up anytime soon. With our clients, we seem to have gone from everyone wanting to fix because the media was saying it's not going to drop to then it's still dropping and then really no indication now that it's going to go up to a lot of people saying, nah, I'll take the pun on the variable. The variable's looking pretty good. Yeah, so I would say probably start the year, again, I'd say 90, 95% of our clients were fixing in at 3.7. Yep. You know, and that was... That was a hot cheapest, rate. Yeah, cheapest rates that ever been. And there was no, I guess, you know, no mainstream media anyway saying that they're going to go differently. Now we are seeing a lot more people stick into the variable, but at the same time, like I said before, it comes down to that LVR, you know. The bank's variable rate on, say, a 95% lend might be 3.5%. When you consider that to, to a fixed rate at, say, 2.9, you've got 0.6%, which is greater than two, I guess, RBA cuts. Well, it's probably even more than three at the moment, given the banks aren't even passing on 0.2% every time. Yeah, but the RBAs, we're sitting at 0.75, so the RBA's only got three cuts left. Well, that's if you believe that it can't go into negative territory, <laughs> <laughs> which would be groundbreaking and scary for our just general consumer confidence and economy uh, mood really but we hope we don't have to talk in that situation in a year's time yeah and i guess i mean the main thing i hop on with my clients is the rba rate is i guess an indication of the strength of the australian economy the australian banks aren't borrowing at that rate they're borrowing from the international money markets where we're sitting at 1.3 1.5 yeah so when you look at that and then say they borrow at 1.3 and they're lending at 2.8 there's not much margin there the, the other thing we have to consider is pensioners and, and savings rates in Australia. We've obviously got an aging population. Well, there's nothing now, isn't there, really? Yeah, so there's only, you know, so the what banks... The point, what's the point rate at the moment? Correct, yeah. So there's not much difference between, I think you can still sort of get two, two and a bit percent on a savings account. So there's not a whole lot of room there for the bank. You know, at the end of the day, they're going to make a profit owned by shareholders. They, they've got to make a profit. So yeah. that's something to consider as well when people you know they always ask what's what's the lowest it can go so further limitations on the fixed rate i generally see a couple of things one the limitation on how much you can pay down which yeah. for a lot of people is a limitation for others they never want to pay down more than the schedule rate anyway so they're not worried about that two they generally seem to all have these annoying package fees <laughs> wealth package 
you know, all that. I don't feel any wealthier by paying the package fee, by the way, Sam. <laughs> it's gone the other way. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so in terms of the limitation of the 10,000, yeah, most banks do limit how much extra you can repay. I guess what they're saying is we're happy to give you a fixed rate. You're going to know what your repayment is. But as a result of that, I'm not going to let you, you know, pay, pay out this quickly. loan. Yeah. yeah, we've entered into an agreement to borrow the funds for that period. So we need to make sure that we make our return. For the whole period. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's one. Uh, number two, in terms of the, I guess, the professional fees. Yeah. I think... Um, Call it what you want. Yeah, the... There's definitely uh, been research done. So I think it's if you have four or more products with one bank, you're about 80% less likely, don't quote me exactly on these, but about 80% less likely to leave uh, because you see it as too hard. So what the banks do by packaging up your, your home loan, your credit cards, your account, and we see it with clients coming in when you say, all right, let's look at a refinance. And they, they go, oh, I've got, go up in the air. Yeah. oh, I've got my Vodafone, I've got everything direct debited. But you're fine for an hour of your time, if that, to change your direct debits over. You know, we're saving thousands of dollars. Yeah. So I think it's become a lot easier to, to move banks as well uh, these days than compared to, say, 10 years ago. But that's a reason why I think they also put it in. Yeah, um, I, I think it's, it's a rort. Uh, we had that 10 years ago. I think I've spoken about this before on the podcast, but 10 years ago, might have been less government you know, going after banks for their fee-for-no-service stuff before the other fee-for-no-service stuff we've had recently. Oh, you know, $5, $10, ATM fees are too high. So they said, yeah, cool. You know, you're right. We're not going to charge all these fees. We're just going to replace it with a... Instead of our $10 a month being 120 bucks a year, we're going to replace it with a $395 professional wealth package fee and you can now have a credit card so you can, you know, spend more money on that side. I can't... I cannot believe how that has flown and hasn't been picked up because i just see it as a, what are you getting for that really you're not getting much at all you're getting an offset account maybe and with a fixed rate with, with a fixed rate generally you're not getting an offset account are you correct yeah i mean we've got access to um a couple of banks that will let us fix tell us about them have a hundred percent offset so uh, the likes of uh, unibank teachers mutual um adelaide bank i think bendigo do it as well um, yeah, you can get your 100% offset account linked to your fixed rate. So the great thing there, and a lot of first home buyers of my clients will, will look at this option because you've got the certainty of your repayment. You know what you're going to pay for, say, you know, a one to five year period, depending on how long you fix. At the same time, you can still make as much repayments into that offset as you want. So you're not limited to an extra $10,000 per annum, which most banks typically do. I find when you go to these tier two banks, a lot of them slug you on fees, application fees, extra stuff. Is that the reality with these banks though? These no. lenders? No, no. So for example, Unibanks, uh, Teachers Mutual, they're member-owned banks. So typically, uh, it's about $600 sign-up and then no ongoing fees. We have a maybe a little, little agreement there where we might be able to get that $600 sign-up waived. Okay, so a good broker can help you out there? Yeah, so you know, if you find yourself, definitely ask the question with your broker. They should be doing that to see what they can save you in terms of those fees. Likes of Adelaide Bank, I believe they do charge an, an annual fee on it. And that's obviously something we need to keep considering all the time is if you've got a 3% mortgage and you're paying $300 or $400 a year as an annual fee for your offset account, you really need to have ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 in your offset as an average to even get back to zero when it comes to that cost save. 
Correct. And that's where like a basic loan might come in. So again, conversation with your broker, let's have a look at your cash flows. Let's see how much extra you can repay or, yeah. or cash you will have available. If you're living week to week, because you may have dropped down to one income, maybe the professional or the that package isn't isn't for you. You know, get on a basic loan. Typically, there's zero. Can you sign get on a basic loan for with a fixed loan though? Uh, typically not. No. Mm-hmm. Typically, the banks want the fixed rate loans under that that package. Yeah. For someone who might be a bit nervous looking at a uni bank or a teachers mutual, they'd never heard of it. What would you say to them? In Australia, we're pretty lucky. Banks are insured by the government. You know, these tier, I guess, you know, what you consider tier two. Most of the time, they do have cheaper or potentially uh, better deals or more suitable deals than what the majors are. I guess the benefit of the majors is that with them, with their big book, they've probably got a greater credit appetite for things that maybe don't fit quite in the square. But if you're a pretty sort of vanilla client, you know, you're a PAYG employee, been there for 12 months, have your deposit saved, I, I think they're great. And we're probably seeing, I'm seeing anyway, maybe the younger generations uh, being a little bit more comfortable. More open to giving them a crack? Yeah, like one question I always ask clients is how often do you go into a branch? Uh, and that's that's a big one when choosing a lender because you've got the likes of, say, your Macquarie's and your ING's who do some great stuff in terms of rates and products. Don't have the branch, but most clients don't actually go into a physical branch anymore. They actually detest it. And I think that's where brokers pick up a fair bit of business mm. because people don't want to deal directly with one bank. The apps, the online banking, are they all pretty good? They're all, I mean, they're all pretty similar these days. So you can do what you need to do. On them, you can transfer money, complete access 24-7. They've all got debit cards, um, you know, ATMs. You can use any ATM to withdraw cash. Access is there. I mean, when was the last time you drew out cash, Trent? Probably once every couple of months. And I would go to one of the ATMs just down the road anyway, to be honest. Yeah. So, I mean, I think... Or I would just have, you know, for example, I would have a level of my savings in just a Commonwealth account and go a cashless card situation there. It doesn't, as you say, don't, you don't have to have all your eggs in the one bank basket, right? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's just easy online these days. I mean, I've got, I'm, I'm with four banks. So I think I'm with four as well. Yeah. yeah. The second tiers, I think are definitely winning a lot of business and that's helping to keep your first tier. So your big four honest as well. Yeah. yeah. Any more final points on that before we wrap up, Sam? Yeah, I think sort of as we have discussed today, I mean, a fixed rate loan can be a great tool when it's suitable for you. Um, just need to make sure that's suitable and it lines up with your, your goals and objectives. And, you know, that's a conversation to have with your broker just to make sure that what you're getting put into is fantastic because you don't want to get put into a fixed rate and then have to try and get out and, and potentially that's going to cost you. Yeah, it can be painful. Okay. Sam, thanks very much. Cool. We'll thanks, soon. Appreciate it. Okay, it's time for our suburb spotlight. And today we are talking about... Uh, interesting suburb. It's out in the hills. Not many people would travel through there on a daily basis, but it's certainly a destination suburb for a lot of people, and that's Kalamunda. We've got one person who can help us with that conversation. As always, it's our number one agent for that suburb. It's Nigel Aldrich. Nigel, thank you very much for coming in. No worries, Trent. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate uh, it. Hey, Nigel, when I think of Kalamunda, I think of the views. I think of the surrounding suburbs like Gooseberry Hills, Les Murdy. Uh, I think of the good schools that are around as well and i also think of the heritage can you give us a, a little bit of that flavor uh, this morning to talk about 
Where did this this suburb? I'm guessing it's a very old suburb, as I as I understand it. But there's got to be a lot of stories as well. Yeah, look, I think that there are a lot of stories. There's a lot of history. There's also all those things that you mentioned before and more. But in terms of the history of Kalamunda, it goes back. Kalamunda basically was a, a suburb that was created off the original infrastructure that went up into the hills, which was the timber industry and, uh, of course, the Victoria Dam, which was, was Perth's primary water uh, source uh, or storage facility. Do we still use that? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, uh, funnily enough, the water from Victoria Dam basically was built to, to go down to that big tank on top of Kings Park and then feed the rest of Perth from there. Oh, wow. Kalamunda itself didn't get water till about, I think, 1957 because of the way it sits above the dam. Yep. So, yeah, but yeah, interesting little fact. So, yeah, it's got a lot of history out there, that kind of stuff. Of course, the Mundaring Weir behind Kalamunda was built later in the, in the 1800s, and then that also would have fueled a little bit of uh, industry through there. But really, the timber town was, was a big timber town originally. Uh, well, not Kalamunda itself, but the peripheral areas, and they were pulling timber out of there um, back down to the Canning River. So that attracted settlers in the late 1870s, and the earliest house was built by uh, the Sturk family in 1881 on what is... Uh, a very good piece of land, which is still there. The cottage that they built uh, back then is still actually there, and it's a, it's a bit of a tourist attraction now. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. Uh, a lot of people probably go through Kalamunda to get out to a lot of the uh, walking tracks and wineries and all those sort of places as well, just to get over the hills. Uh, heading out to the zigzag as well as also uh, you know, Kalamunda Road. And when I think about that, I'm always heading through there to get to the zigzag. Is it a, is this a part of the, the culture, the lifestyle as well, to have those views and that over-the-hill, over-the-ranges access? Yeah, look, I think different things for different people. The, the views, especially to the city, are very aspirational. The, the bigger homes are, are on, the, on the escarpment, and people uh, gravitate towards that, uh, just the same as they would do in any suburb. They want to be in the best real estate in the area. So, yeah, the, the escarpment, the views, the views back over the valley facing east are equally as impressive. Mm. You're very close to uh, Peasy Brook and Bickley, which have got beautiful vineyards, very underrated, uh, a fantastic area in itself. What we've noticed in Kalamunda, uh, it's become more of a destination than perhaps somewhere that you might pass through. There's markets there now every, every once every month. There's the big what we call the big market, um, but every week there's a, a growers market every Sunday, and that's mainly for the locals. If you went up to the main street of Kalamunda, it would be as busy and active as Oxford Street or Beaufort Street. Yeah, no, I can I can definitely understand that. I think there is a growing trend towards again that township vibe. That's why I think, I think the city can be so quiet so often is because people are getting now finally some culture back into their local townships, wherever that be, north, south or east of Perth. Uh, interesting point I would note as well is that as much as there might be a relationship between price and socio-demographics versus distance from Perth, Kalmund is a little different in that it's not a first homeowner or cheap suburb, really. It's more of a middle-class, you know, mid-range price point, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely true. It's an attraction area for, for lifestyle primarily, I think. You know, there are other alternatives in housing. If, if you want to pay the same money and go somewhere else, you can. But It's if, a tree change lifestyle. It's a tree change, yeah. It's a tree change, but with the benefits of the city because you're not compromising much by living there in terms of what you get in a, in a, in a, a normal suburb. Especially with Tonkin Highway haven't been upgraded so much recently. All of that. The, the, the highway, the railway line coming into Forestfield, we haven't touched on that, but that's, yeah. that's, we're, we're expecting that to have an impact in the area. The general development of the area 
and the the people coming in there who want to have that security they want to have the opportunity there for the kids to go to good schools but they they want to be out of the city but they want to have all the mod cons that you would normally get choice of doctors they've got all the banks in Kalamunda everything you need basically would I be right in saying that Kalamunda is an above average age suburb in that it's probably a bit older than most suburbs. In terms of the population, there's roughly around 30% of the population are over 50. Mm. Um, I think that's more than Netherlands. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the median age is 47. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an old suburb, yeah. I think. Yeah, so um, you've got clearly it's people who are, who are probably, as you said, destination to be there for the twilight at the best years. Funny thing is, what what quite often as an agent, what I get is that I'll, I'll meet younger people coming in, they're looking to buy a home and it'll be their second home. And if I ask them the question, I say, did one of you grow up? Almost every single time, one of them will say that, yes, they it's grew always up a yes. And they're bringing the other one up here. So one of the partners in the couple would have grown up in the area. The kids get to a certain age. They want them to have that lifestyle. That they had. And they move back. Yeah, that's very true. I look, yeah. But most weeks we have that where it seems so interesting that people like to come back to their roots, whether it's a lifestyle suburb like Kalamunda, Augusta, northern suburb, suburb, anywhere near the city. It very much seems like a big portion of people buying into the suburb are buying back into the suburb from when they were young. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, I mean, there's a community, isn't it? You know, mm. and, It's and important to people. Community, nostalgia, yep. you know, uh, family. If their family are already there, uh, you'd have that support network close by. Uh, but we definitely see that trend. And that's interesting because what's happened in the, in the Kalamunda area is that traditionally younger people will go down to the foothill areas like Forest, Forest Hill, Holycombe. Yep, bit cheaper. Yep, bit cheaper. They'll have their first home down there. And then they'll make the jump at some stage up the hill and, uh, and, and buy their second home up there. So it's as if Tonkin Highway is a barrier. Instead of people wanting to move closer to the city who originate from that lifestyle, it's as if they go down the foothill and then back up the foothill like, as if that is the destination. Yeah, yeah they take a step down and they take a step back yeah. up. Yeah. You know, it, it, and it's very aspirational. You know, I, I, I guess the fact that it's higher mm, yeah, <laughs> it makes it even more... Why not? If you lived in the western suburbs, you're buying close to Sterling Highway as your first home and then gradually get closer to the river or the ocean. It'd probably be a similar type of thing. But the interesting thing that's happened is that that's our traditional catchment, but that's faded a little bit recently because the market's been off for first home buyers and investors. So we haven't seen those people as much. They haven't had the kick along because they haven't really gain the equity in their home either mm, so yeah. because it's been dormant there for a while yeah, a lot of people in, in negative equity or in you know less than the 20 percent they may have put down who are just sort of stuck right now to to push up the ladder we have however just seen some of them coming back to the market and either they've they've you know got to the point where they've they've actually got some equity in their property or whether they've realized that the opportunity back up the hill is there in terms of the price and they've got themselves into a better position financially. We're starting to see that happen again. So it's, it's good because younger people are coming back into the area. So going back to your point about the, the ageing population, I guess we, we're all suffering a little bit from that in terms of some of these older suburbs, but we're seeing new, fresh... You're seeing a revitalisation. Yeah, we're definitely seeing a revitalisation. Oh, and that's coming. good. Yeah. And one yeah. other thing you were saying to me just uh, when we were off air, Nigel, is that... You're actually seeing a lot more buyers coming into the market since the election, and I would probably say that's a bit 
off trend to a lot of suburbs that we speak about who probably over winter have been a little bit nervous to get in. You, are you sa- you're saying that you've seen a bit more activity in that space? We, we definitely are seeing more activity, yeah. And I, I don't know, look, you know, with agents, you know, you talk to one agent, they're in their purple patch, you talk to another agent and, and you know, yep. they're not. Next month's going to be a boomer for them. You know, it can be a little bit like that in our industry. But uh, we've seen July, we had a very good month, the best month for a number of years. August wasn't bad. September wasn't bad. So the numbers are increasing for us. I'd like to think that the barometer for any suburb is the number one agent, especially when it's a quiet part of the cycle. People generally tend to stick to the number one or two agent and not really take a gamble on everyone else. So I think it's always good to see uh, and use that top agent as the barometer. And if I'm talking only to those top agents every week, it is interesting to note that, yeah, Calamunda is bucking the trend and we should, you know, yeah. keep, oh, keep it, note. It's not boom time. You of know, course not, but it's not. It's Look, when you consider yeah. it to a, a Maida Vale, you consider it to maybe a High Wycombe right mm-hmm. now or even a forest field where we're definitely not seeing a massive uptick or a strong uptick to say, look, notably we've had some really yeah. good months in Calamunda. That means something for that type of lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. look, I think that um, the indicators are there for us and we're seeing a positive change. I'm hoping that what will happen is that as interest rates fall, obviously money's cheaper to lend, but just as important is that people aren't going to be getting any money in the bank. So it might drive the investors into the market. Mm. So the investors might be driven into the market looking for better returns, followed by a generation of first home, home buyers who have been reluctant to purchase because they don't think that it's a great investment. So if those two things combine... You know, we might get some growth in the market. Now, let's segue into what a first-term buyer could pay for a property in Kalamunda. Let's talk about price points from cheapest to most expensive. What does Kalamunda look like? Okay, so at the bottom of the market, uh, a, a first-home buyer has got options. In the early threes, they can buy a small unit, an older unit, probably built in the 70s or the 80s. Might need a little bit of work, but something will get them into the, into the market, definitely. I was selling some Brand new uh, apartments, kind of around the 400, uh, two by twos, around 70 square metres. Are people taking them up? No, reluctant, yeah. Why do people need an apartment in Kalamunda? No, they're they're centred around the town centre. And primarily the objective was originally, you know, for older people to downsize. Um, But there have been a couple of developments of, you know, apartment style Developments that have have been difficult, difficult, more difficult to sell. But I think in in a different market they'll they'll probably do quite well. Um, they're competing, you know, at say around four hundred. They're also competing. You can buy something, something close to land value, or you could buy something close to land value, house and land. Yep. You know, a seventies house, a three by one that needs work around four hundred. But even a three by two on two hundred and fifty square meters, you can get in the four hundreds. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. that price point. What are we paying for a family home though? A good family home, something nice. You're going to be paying a minimum six fifty. You know, six yeah, early sixes, uh, right through to eight hundred, nine hundred. That would be most of that bell curve is sitting in that space. That's what you know. A lot of families will be after those homes. Yeah. Uh, anything that's good and good value in that space will sell uh, relatively quickly. So once you get beyond kind of eight hundred, then you're you just, into your big stuff. Yeah, you start to lose the buyers a bit. Yeah. Um, and it'll go anywhere from eight hundred. You know, we sold, about 18 months ago, I sold a house for um, just under 1.9. I think that was the most expensive house for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, these are niche lifestyle properties on a lot of land, right? You know, in terms of what you might get elsewhere. Yeah. Awesome, awesome property. And there's, you know, there's a number of homes that are sold, um, you know, 
just above one, one, one between one point one, one point four, one point five. Your homesteads on the on the escarpment views, city yep. views. I guess that conversation around subdivision and development is quite relevant in Kalamunda, especially given that the city has rezoned last February a lot of the area. Yeah, yeah, they made an amendment to the town planning scheme, and they've uh, dual coded a lot of property, uh, basically taken a chunk of uh, central Kalamunda, uh, the, the area that's sewered. And they've adjusted the, the zoning there to uh, primarily the, the bigger part of that is gone to R20. So you've got a R10, R20. Um, there's a smaller patch that's kind of lifted to R30, R4, or R30, R40. So the requirement for R40 properties is limited in the area. Um, so R30, R20 would be the, you know, in terms of developers, mm. that's the kind of development. The sweet that, spot. Yeah. Are you seeing many people take this up as a purchase and have any actually come back on the market in the last, what is it, 16, 17 months? Um, I, I think we've seen a few developers that had land banked who, who, who knew this was coming. So they've actually brought their properties to the market and they've been trying to get on the first wave of that subdivision. Now I'm actually seeing some uh, activity from developers recognising what's there. Um, but they're also not going to rush into that because there's a, there's a pool of supply that's sitting there. And I think that they're waiting for that or seeing the actual effect of that. Um, of, yeah, what's how, the end value going to look like? Exactly, yeah, because it's going to take, you know, the next six months to a year uh, with the supply, the expectation, the supply is going to change. So uh, it will be interesting to see what we end up with there. I think this whole suburb, this whole area, Highwickham Forest or Kalamunda, it's all the, you know, the herd of wildebeest sitting at the river waiting everyone's waiting who's gonna be the first person to jump in and build that triplex or build those side-by-sides because no one really yet has any data in the market to reinforce the value or the profit they may make from that investment yeah we haven't got any end value data really yet no it's someone brave who tests the market with something different isn't it you know you really have to research what people want but i think at the end of the day anything that's done well there's an expectation that you'll get a good return on it. It's just uh, how, long, how much it costs to get there. And that's something that I think is an important point yeah. to talk about with the city is that probably the most punitive and costly town planning scheme amendment I've seen in mm. WA has been the one that Calamundas put out. Yeah. Just from the cost that it takes to uh, fulfill the criteria points involved in terms of hitting those energy star ratings, uh, getting all of the um, you know amendments done to up to upgrades to existing houses, having mm. to put in a mixture of two and two story and single story prop- properties in a development that may not mm. really be required by the area. All these things yeah. are actually you know they're, they're cost implications that add risk to a development, and I think yeah. that's why the city's not seeing mm. that real push of infill that they were hoping for from their development. Uh, rezoning, you know, at the start of last year. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's an interesting point. You know, the seven star energy rating is a thing, a little bit cost prohibitive in terms of you know somebody buying one of those blocks and then having to build on it. I don't think there's going to be a lot of upgrading of existing. I think most of them are going to be wiped. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to, you know, the build behind kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the show wanted. I don't think they. I think that's what they're trying to do. They're yeah. trying to get you to knock down the seventies, eighties home. Exactly. The reality is, and I know we're not we're not talking High Wycombe, but in High Wycombe, for example, there's a lot of very good solid double brick homes in High Wycombe that don't need knocking down. I know. You know, it's a shame to see them go. Yeah, I know. And and especially if somebody's paid for that, Hmm. you know. uh, You just wipe 100 grand off the table a second, you get a demolisher three. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, not many people are going to be prepared to do that. But 
And look, let's see if they mellow on that. I, I don't know. You know, it's. Um, I would think they will. I yeah. think they won't get the numbers they're looking for. Yeah. And they will start to mellow on those criteria to hit the split zoning. Mm. But you know, obviously, Kalamunda, different story. Older properties in a lot of that space too. Yeah, yeah. There's a, around that area where they're talking. There's a lot of older properties. More land value. Yeah, really. there's some fibro houses in there and. You know, so it might be easier to do there. Yep. So, you know, we'll see what that looks like over the next few years. But either way, I think there's a demand for the kind of housing that they're, they're wanting to create. I do. I think there's more people want to live closer to the town centre and, and, and realise the amenity to it. So I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's actually a good thing. Mm. You know, in time, I think it, it will actually benefit a lot of people, you know, because... Oh, you know, 100% agree. I yeah. think we're just waiting for that first brave uh, soldier to go out there and see what it costs to get it done and yeah, what he can get yeah. out of it at the end. Yeah. But at the end of the day, with real estate, it's not what it is, it's where it is, isn't it? You know, it's the location is key. It is. And, and if what people want to be close to something and it's flat, because that's the other thing, yep. you know, you, you want a nice flat block close to everything. It's timing as well. Timing, yeah, yeah. And I would have thought that timing, the right time for that brave soldier is about now. It takes about 18 months to do a development, right? Yeah. I'm very confident that we're about 18 months away from the broader side of Perth, uh, starting to see some results and some some confidence, more confidence come back through with population growth and employment. Yeah. Last question, Nige. Sure. Median house price. What is it? Kalamunda uh, at the moment is five seventy. Five hundred seventy thousand dollars. Yeah. Okay, so Nigel Aldridge, if you had a five hundred seventy thousand dollars in your back pocket right now, and I asked you to go and buy a property in Kalamunda. What would that property be? Okay, interesting question because, it, you know, if, if you're asking me at my stage of life where I'm at, I'd probably go out and say, look, I'm going to look for an investment property, something on a corner. I can cut into fold, actually a, a big piece of land in that new rezone area, uh, though you can get something cheaper. So, yeah, I would be looking for that. I'd be looking for something like that. Uh, for a younger person, even if they were savvy and they wanted to look to the future, probably the same thing. An older person looking to downsize, then they're going to be looking at something, an alternative to that. They can pick up a beautiful unit for that kind of money. So, uh, be you, one of the best in Kalamunda, wouldn't it? You'd have a, you could get a, a very, very nice unit for that three bed, two bath, double garage. Mm. Yeah, uh, close to town. Yeah, Nigel, thank you very much for coming in and chatting Kalamunda. I look forward to having you in again uh, with some good positive news in the future. Anytime, Trent. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!